And uh, please turn to page 269, Ruth chapter 3, page 269 of the Church Bibles. And hopefully inside your service sheet is a sheet that says Songs During Communion. On the back of that is an outline of where we're going as we look at Ruth 3 together. Well, it's been an amazing uh, few weeks, spectacularly good weather. Day after day, the sun keeps appearing. It is miraculous. And uh, when England is like this, uh, there is, I, I doubt, many better places in the world to be than England in a summer. I'm loving it. Our whole family is loving it, except for one thing. Uh, for the first time in about three years, uh, that old familiar struggle is back, struggling to get tired children to go to sleep on a hot summer's night. Uh, It's a horrible sight and sound to hear uh, little children writhing away, tossing and turning, trying to get comfortable in their beds. Uh, My study is is right next to our our children's bedroom and in the early evening I can hear them fussing and huffing and all sorts of things, trying to find that elusive, comfortable spot where they'll find rest. Now, I've got to be honest, uh, for Liz and I, we don't share this struggle at the moment. Uh, I'm sleeping like a baby, which, by the way, is the most ridiculous phrase ever. <laughs> if, uh, if you've ever had or been near a baby. Uh, but while some, some of us may struggle to get to sleep in these warmer days, uh, the real problem for adults is not when we're asleep or trying to get to sleep. The real problem is when we wake. Uh, that's where the real restlessness starts, the tossing and turning. That's where we spend our waking hours pursuing circumstances where we will be at rest, uh, free from anxiety. But it's elusive, isn't it? Uh, Because ours is a restless world, whether whether it be the constant 24-hour news service where everything's changing, uh, we're never standing still uh, to the fears in our own lives. Tell me, do you know the feeling of not being at rest? I suspect most of us do for different reasons whether it's a restlessness that has come about because of a significant loss of something slipping through your fingers, something that is hard to get back, whether it be financial loss and the pressures that many are feeling at the moment, perhaps even the loss of a job, maybe it's relationship loss, a broken relationship, a damaged relationship. And then there is, as we've seen earlier in this story of Ruth, the loss that death brings It's a loss that actually shapes the opening verses of this story. Do you remember them back in uh, the first verses of chapter 1, the huge losses this family had felt? And any human heart that has suffered the loss that death brings knows how restless a heart can be. And then there is a restlessness that, uh, I guess, failure brings, whether it be failure in career or relationships, failure or a sense of failure as a parent or a spouse or as a child. And I take it as well, if you're a Christian here and you've been one for any length of time, you'll know that sense of failure as a Christian, of those moments when you've said something or failed to say something or done something or failed to do it, that as a genuine Christian leaves you embarrassed and ashamed. It's no wonder we have restless hearts. Or perhaps it's the sense of pressure that leaves you feeling anxious and restless, that intense restlessness that comes from just how busy we are, You ever know that feeling of drowning under the weight of responsibility or expectations and longing for rest? Or perhaps it's a sense of dissatisfaction 
And I reckon our whole Western world is built on a restless pursuit of comfort, of that place of security where, where we're finally at rest. That no matter how beautiful something is or however happy we are or however affluent or however comfortable, there's always some more wonderful possibility around the corner. And so we're restless about everything. Our body shape, our fitness, teeth, wrinkles, clothes, entertainment, you name it. Or we end up throwing ourselves into some pursuit of excellence. Uh, Why can't my child have a better teacher? Why can't I have the perfect job? When will we ever go on that holiday? We're restless people, tossing and turning, trying to get comfortable. Well, into a world like ours and into lives like ours, our God speaks these remarkable words that we heard from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, today as we continue our look at the story of Ruth, we will watch as two women pursue that very thing, pursue rest. And uh, we who've been here in recent weeks will know that this pursuit has been coming for some time and from some distance. Back in chapter 1, they were women in a far-off country, far away from God, who heard the news of a way back and made the journey, made the journey back to Bethlehem. By chapter 2 last week we saw them move a little step closer into a field, the field of Boaz, tasting and seeing God's favour, seeing how he was providing even a redeemer for them. And then as we turn to uh, chapter 3 this morning, the, the question still remains though about Boaz, this provider whose field they landed in in chapter 2. Will he actually redeem Ruth? Because there's going to be more to it than just some uh, generosity, some grain that he has provided in chapter 2. Will this foreigner from Moab, Ruth, actually be redeemed? Will she be taken as his wife? Because that's what it's going to take. And so here we are in chapter 3, getting to the height of this pursuit. Now comes the moment, the big risk. Uh, Ruth in this chapter is going to lay all her cards on the table. She is going to offer herself completely to Boaz. And we'll watch. And as she does, what we're going to see, as we've seen all the way through this story, is that there's something much bigger than a love story going on here. As Ruth pursues rest with Boaz, we're going to see what it looks like to come back to God, to pursue rest with our God. Have a look at verse 1 as this pursuit begins. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not find you a home, or more literally, should I not find rest for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself, and put on your best clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. It's quite a plan, isn't it? A demanding plan, asking a lot of Ruth. This woman who started in a far-off country, who's who's taken the, the risky step back to Bethlehem, who's even gone to Boaz's field, now this intimate step. And at the climax of the plan in verse 4, it's all, well, a bit questionable, isn't it? quite ambiguous, a planned meeting between a man and a woman in the dark in a bed. What are we meant to make of it? 
Well, amidst all the ambiguity, and there is much, and I think deliberately written in by the storyteller, one thing is very clear. This plan is incredibly risky. Naomi, who in chapter 1 and 2 seemed listless and immovable, has all of a sudden burst into life, come up with the most risky plan, the most daring manoeuvre. Remember the context in which this book is written. See the risks, huge risks. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, the days that this, this move is being made in? These are the days when the judges ruled. Uh, days when everyone did what they saw fit. Days when there were no rules. It's night time. Boaz has been drinking. No one would know. Is there not a big risk that Ruth will be abused? And then there is this. There is the risk of Ruth's rejection. In the days when the judges ruled, it wasn't hard to find a willing man, but it was hard to find a godly one. And yet Boaz is just such a man. How's he going to respond to this intimate, somewhat ambiguous, suggestive move by Ruth? Especially when you take into account that this godly man is being pursued by a Moabite woman. And Moabite women have a very colourful history in the Bible. The entire nation was born of the daughter of Lot. Remember the story? A horrific night in some dingy cave of drunken incest. And now here's Ruth, all dressed up, lying at Boaz's feet in a barn. And then, of course, there is the biblical injunction that Boaz would know in Deuteronomy 23 when God's people were told this, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, says the Lord. A godly man was sure to reject a woman like this. The risk is massive, perhaps even foolish. And then, of course, there is the risk that we've seen all the way through this story, the risk of regret. Is it really worth pursuing the God's favour in Bethlehem? That was the question in chapter 1. Is it worth pursuing a redeemer? Orpah, Ruth's sister, gave up long ago. Ruth has made the risk all the way to Bethlehem, all the way to this field, but will Boaz be all she hoped? What if he can't redeem? And so in the face of these huge risks, you have to ask, what was Naomi thinking? Has the grain of chapter 2 gone to her head? Has she pushed far too far here? Well, here's the thing. Ruth and Naomi are betting everything on two huge factors. Firstly, they are betting it on the fact that Boaz is indeed worthy of pursuing. Remember the description of him in chapter 2, verse 1? He is a man of standing. And then there is this, the thing that got uh, Naomi excited in the first place in chapter 2 verse 20, what she knows of God's word, God's promise of a kinsman redeemer. But if Boaz is going to redeem Ruth, as I said before, it's going to involve a lot more than what we've seen so far. Boaz will have to buy her back. He will have to pay the family debts. He will have to take this Moabite woman as his wife. And so there it is, the plan put forward, the huge risks weighed. And do you see Ruth's decision? Verse 5, I'll do whatever you say, she answered. It's an amazing response, isn't it? I mean, put yourself in Ruth's shoes and Naomi's coming up with this plan but Ruth is the one who actually has to do it. She has to walk the walk. This is complete trust. Total abandonment to this pursuit of Boaz. She is totally exposed, totally vulnerable. 
as she makes this action, as she takes this decision and starts to make her steps towards the threshing floor, all the theoretical risks that we've talked about are in play. It's either all or nothing. And Ruth says, I will do it. Now remember what we're seeing here. Uh, This is a bigger thing than a love story between a man and a woman. This is a picture all the way through Ruth of what it looks like to come to our God, to pursue him for rest. And what we find here with Ruth, we should hope to find in ourselves a total commitment to pursue relationship with our God. And that calls for risk. To reject the safety of self-sufficiency, to reject other redeemers, other options for rest. To say to our God, to be able to say to him what Ruth says in verse 5, I will do whatever you say. Well, back to Ruth. Let's watch. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything that her mother-in-law told her to do. Can you imagine it? She's washing. She anoints herself with perfume. She dresses as if for her wedding. Not knowing if ruin or rescue awaits her there, she goes outside the safety of the city gate, down to the threshing floor, a place meant for men and for threshing, and prepares to plead for redemption. Despite all the risks, she really did it. Out the door, past, I imagine, many people on the street in such a state, washed, perfumed, clothed in her best, ready. Now it's important to remember something as we watch her make this move. Firstly, remember something about Boaz. He is, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, a man of standing. He is rich, he is respected, he is powerful, as we will see in chapter 4. And then there is Ruth, destitute, a nobody. And so if you look at verse 3, don't get the idea, wrong idea about that verse. Don't get in your head a picture of a woman who is fresh from a spa retreat, in her favourite perfume, in a wedding dress from one of those fancy shops on Eccleshall Road. Now she's got nothing. She's come back from Moab with nothing apart from the grain of chapter 2. Don't picture a vogue bride here. Picture a pathetic figure. Washed well as best as she could. Perfume, well who knows what. And the dress, well I expect some shabby, torn, thrown away thing she has picked up from somewhere. She is a pathetic figure moving through the night. A streetwalker. Brides don't walk the street at night. She's of a different group. Someone must have seen her. I wonder what they thought. Well, verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went down to, to lie at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Can you see her there, her heart racing, her lips sort of repeating the little speech she's been given by her mother-in-law? She waits and at last he wakes. I, I imagine wakes cold from having his feet uncovered. <laughs> he turns uh, and sees this woman. He says, who are you? The moment's arrived and she goes for it. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. More literally, spread your wing over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. She's pleading for her redemption. She says, remember what you said to me in the field in chapter 2 verse 12? Remember what you said about me taking refuge under God's wing? Well, if I have taken refuge under his wing, then you, you my redeemer, spread your wing over me. 
Take me from uh, being this foreigner to your family. Take me from being a widow to your wife, from one who has nothing to the one who is covered with your blessing. She pleads for her redemption. Buy me back. And with her plea spoken, she falls silent. Can you imagine that moment? If he even just paused to draw breath or to reflect a little, every moment would have been agony for her. Everything hangs in the air. All these risks, all her hopes. Is it going to be ruin or rescue? How will he respond? Now I reckon it's crucial we feel the suspense here. Because again, this is a picture of what it's like to pursue relationship with our God. And for many, I reckon it will be hard to feel that suspense. And for some of us who have been Christians for a while, that that suspense left long ago. You come to God now well prepared, not too shabby at all. And we don't say that sort of thing out loud, but we're no longer as desperate as we used to be. There's not as much awe around him as there used to be that that we could actually be with him. No question, as we heard on Ruth's lips in chapter 2, why me? Why have I found favour? No, our place in his home has more merit now, more than it used to. We could easily become like the Pharisee standing on the street corner looking around at others and saying, I thank God that I'm not like other men. We feel secure and justified in our own behaviour. As we look around for comparison, sure, as I approach him, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not perfectly dressed, but I'm better dressed than some. Well, if even a hint of that is found in your heart, Ruth says, don't kid yourself. You're comparing yourself to the wrong person. Try comparing yourself to your Redeemer. See whether you are indeed a suitable spouse for him. Even in your best clothes, on your best day, with all the preparation time in all the world, your clothes are filthy rags compared to his. And so see Ruth walk the streets and see yourself. Jesus says to any who feel even a slight presumption of desert of being in his presence, don't kid yourself. Revelation 3 says, you think you are rich. You think you have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. You do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. But then there will be others here who feel the suspense all too well, who know the risk of pursuing relationship with God, know how unworthy they are and feel perhaps rejection is an appropriate response. Well, you want to see what it looks like to come back to your Redeemer even if you are unworthy and we all are. We'll see Boaz's response to Ruth in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Can you imagine how sweet and welcome and unexpected those words would be to her in the night? He responds with blessing. And do you see why in verse 10 he says, This kindness you're showing to me is greater than that you showed earlier. You've not run after other younger men, whether rich or poor. You chose me. Now it's important we understand what Boaz is talking about here with this word kindness. Our idea of kindness is so weak and shallow. Kindness for us is a box of chocolates or a nice word. But the Hebrew word kindness means steadfast love, faithful love. It's a a relationship word, it's a covenant word. That's what faith actually is. A commitment to love your Redeemer faithfully, to choose him to forsake all others. 
Boaz says, this move to pursue relationship with me is greater than the faith you even showed to Naomi when you travelled all the way from, to Bethlehem with her. You are saying, I choose you. You are saying, all other redeemers I forsake, I choose you. And again, it is a picture of our own need to come to Jesus this way, our Redeemer, to come to him with faithful love, to forsake all other places we go for rest. Let me ask you, what is your first love that you forsake for all others? And where do you go when you're restless or anxious or tired? When loss comes or failure or stress or dissatisfaction, where do you go? Or to the one who, like Ruth, forsakes all others and pursues rest with their Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer says this, May you find blessing here, for you have been faithful. And so here is what he promises, verse 11. He says, Don't be afraid. Are there better words in the Bible than those? I don't think so. It's, it's Jesus' most common command. Do not be afraid. It's what Jesus says to restless hearts that come to him for redemption. Don't be afraid. It's what Boaz is saying to Ruth. You've got nothing to fear coming to me. There's no ruin here for you, no rejection, no regret, just rest. You can come to me weary or worn or sad and I will give you rest. Their risk was right. Ruth was in no danger in the presence of this man. She was home. In fact, see what he says to her in verse 11. He gives a promise and a declaration. Firstly, he promises this, you will be redeemed. I will do what you are asking. And then this declaration, you are a worthy bride. You're a noble person. It's amazing, isn't it? This pathetic figure, you are worthy. You've got nothing to be ashamed of here. No one can accuse you. No one in the town. You are worthy. And this is what happens when your Redeemer spreads his wing over you. His clothes are worthy. He covers you in them. And whatever state you are when you come to him, he rewards faithful love with righteousness. That's his clothes. I hear these words from the New Testament of your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus For these ones, for all of you who have come to Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. For these words from Colossians, your life is now hidden with Christ. Well, Ruth was hidden under Boaz's wing and when he saw her, it was through that lens. He didn't see her background as a daughter of light. He didn't see the shabby clothes she'd arrived in. She saw him under his wing. And Boaz has some insight into characters like Ruth. In Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of this family that they will form, we looked at it last week, as Boaz and Ruth have a child by the name of Obed. But in the genealogy, if you go backwards the other way, this is what you see. Do you know who Boaz's mother was? It was Rahab. Remember her? A prostitute. The ultimate outsider. That was his mother one who had before Ruth sought refuge under the Lord's wings. You see, God redeems any who would come to him. Prostitutes, Moabites, Australians, even you. He promises redemption. 
And here Ruth is given a down payment, yet more grain to walk home with. And she waits for Boaz to settle the matter. And we too have been given a down payment by our Redeemer. Ephesians 1 says this, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance until our redemption. And so in view of all this, as we close, what are we to do? Well, it's quite simple. If you've never come back to your God, if you've never come to Jesus as your Redeemer, seeking rest in him, I mean never really come, forsaking all others, then come and find rest. And if you have, heed the words of Boaz to Ruth. Rest until the day. You can picture it. Can you, Ruth, lying exhausted, filled with joy and relief. All, all the fear is gone. She knows her redemption is coming. She's no longer afraid, no longer restless. Or is that you with your Redeemer at rest? No longer anxious? It should be. And if it's not, see how this chapter ends. Ruth uh, sleeping like a baby at her Redeemer's feet, but not Boaz, I suspect. And we'll see why next week. There's a number of twists and turns yet to come. But I suspect he's awake. He's making plans for, as Naomi says in verse 18, do you see what she says of him? Wait, my daughter, until you see what happens. This man will not rest until the matter is settled. If you are restless, do you know this of your God? As we're told in John's Gospel, he will not rest until he's finished this work. He will not rest until you are with him. Our God never slumbers or sleeps in this work. But as for you, he says, you who come to him, rest. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Rest until these words from Revelation are true. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Redeemer has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And what a day that will be. What a redeemer we have. Let's pray.